Hello, everyone. Welcome to Quantum Catechesis. I'm Father Joe Krupp, and you are not. And today, today, today is Wednesday, January something or other. Oh, and you hear me? I hear me. It's a big room. And I sound, I sound so very lovely. Um, I sound like an angel. Now, Richard, that's how you're supposed to sound with your fake English accent. Uh, I'm so happy to be back, you guys. The cruise was a uh, intense and joyful experience, and uh, I don't know what else to say except if you're married. I I just want to tell you, you want to go on the cruise next year. It's lovely. Uh, the cruise um, was just great. I, I talked to a couple who was there, and they said they had avoided it one year because they thought, oh, this is for couples whose marriage is in trouble. And uh, no, this is just for couples who want to have a great time, grow spiritually, um, see my chiseled abs and long flowing hair. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, a big shout out, of course, to Celtic Cove Catholic Bookstore, or where I went yesterday and bought a 830 foot tall picture of Mary. I had to put it in the back of my truck. You can't give me it. This is Martha's fault, by the way. This is my Martha's fault. She gave me a gift card for Celtic Cove Catholic Bookstore, and I was like, all I saw was buy Mary pictures. <laughs> so now I put Mama in the chapel. Did you see her yet? And she looks awesome. And then I got a gift card for Michigan Church Supply. So I went there and accidentally bought statues of Mary. (laughs) You know, if we go by sheer tonnage, I'm getting in heaven. If Jesus is like, you have 8,000 pounds of pictures of my mom. Yeah, you can come in. I'm all set. Uh, So anyway, and welcome to, if we've got new people watching today, uh, I think we picked up some folks on the cruise. I know uh, Chuck picked up a couple people. All right, that's not true. Um, But all kidding aside, welcome. So uh, for those of you not familiar with the show, on Wednesdays I tend to do a catechetical or historical portion. On Thursdays I tend to interview someone if I can, but I hate most people. So it's tough to find guests. Carrie's like, how about so-and-so? I hate that person. And I got that's only if I don't know them. And then on Friday, we do question and answer. So today, we're going to continue a series I started the week before the cruise on the Judean revolt against the Greeks. And so some shows are all history. Some are all theology. This is one of those all history kind of things, although it's really an important period of development of Jewish understanding of the resurrection, uh, and we can probably get into that when we do a wrap-up. Uh, and when I say a wrap-up, that means I am going to bust a rap. <laughs> and I'm not sure what that means, so I hope it's easy to do. <laughs> um, so, Carrie, let me ask you. I'm doing this again tomorrow, right? Or, no, do we have a guest? I can't remember. Father Josh Johnson. Oh, we're going to play that interview. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So tomorrow, you'll see my interview with Father Josh Johnson, superstar action figure, a priest of the Diocese of Baton Rouge, uh, Baton Rouge, as they say in French. And it's my understanding, Baton Rouge, did you know this, is French for we surrender? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm just kidding. You know, although trivia time, there is no word in French for entrepreneur. Okay, so. <laughs> oh, 
grace of mercy. So, uh, when last we left our exciting heroes, uh, the Jewish-Greek war had just broke out, and it went very badly for the Jews at the beginning. So, let me review where we are in history, and so we can just launch right into it. Does this sound good to you guys? Yes. Okay. And let me check in with the goat. Okay, the goat says it sounds good. Oh, can everybody hear me okay? My beard was doing this on the microphone, so I clipped it to the stand, and now I'm talking into it from a stand. Is everybody happy with the sound? Uh, they haven't. Well, if nobody's complained, that's so a good sound. Or not complained, that sounds awful, you know what I mean. They haven't pointed it out, so yeah. I'm hoping it's good. Okay, so let's start with some background. It should be lovely. Uh, if you haven't heard the show, the first one we did, I do recommend you go back and listen to the first one, which was two Wednesdays ago, I believe, where I start us on this topic. Uh, the Maccabean Revolt is the name of the, the uh, episode. Uh, what I'll do is hopefully in five minutes or less summarize that hour. January 11th. What is January 11th now? Was the first episode. Oh, okay. So, yeah, if you go back to January 11th, the year of our Lord, 2023, um, then you should be able to find it there. So what I covered in there was the fact that Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. Uh, and at the height of his power, he conquered the Levant and Palestine, where a lot of the Jews lived. And at his death... All that territory he conquered was divvied up between his generals and the Jews who lived under Greek rule. The Jews then lived under the Greek rule of kind of two competing successors to Alexander. The, um, what do you call those cats? The Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And as a general rule, the Ptolemies ran that area. But sometimes it was the Seleucids, and we can get into that later. It really doesn't matter for what we're doing here. What you need to know is that at first it went great. Jews and Greeks did fantastic together. Uh, this idea of Hellenization, which I talked a lot about, really took hold. Uh, the Jews dug Greek, the, the coin uh, Greek. Uh, it was a great way for them to write. It was a lot more specific than Hebrew and a lot more literal than Hebrew. And um, Hellenization took hold in ways that Jews found appropriate. And the Greeks, as a general rule, didn't police Hellenization in ways Jews found non-appropriate. Uh, I don't think I used this example, but I did think of it later. Greeks built gymnasiums, okay? And they would compete there, and the men tended to compete naked, uh, which the Jews found offensive. So the Greeks didn't force the issue, right? It was an example of where Hellenization wouldn't have worked, so the Greeks didn't force the issue. Uh, so things went good. Uh, the process of Hellenization took hold and then when we hit 175 A.D., which was, I think, about three weeks ago, uh, a series of events occurred within the Jewish community that sparked a lot of troubles. There was a guy named Jason, uh, and Chuck made totally inappropriate jokes about that name, by the way. I want that on the record. Uh, praise Jason. Who went to the Greek ruler Antiochus and bought the high priesthood out from under Ananias III, who was the legit high priest. Um, the Jason then 
also used his high priesthood to gain pretty significant political power. So this horrified the Jews, but it didn't spark revolt. Corrupt people are corrupt. And Jason was as corrupt as they get. Um, Now, three years later, a dude named Menelaus bought the high priesthood from Antiochus out from under Jason. And Jason was not a big fan of the whole turnabout is fair play. And he started to use his wealth and his power to work against Greek rule, specifically Antiochus. So uh, to be clear, at this point, we got a conflict. But the conflict is within the Jewish community. And it's not against Greek rule at all. It's more like... We've had two snakes in a row as high priest, and we don't like these cats. Um, so what do you got? Um, one of these Greek families, the Ptolemies, went to war with the Seleucids. So the Greeks were fighting each other. And Antiochus, the ruler in the uh, Ptolemy family, was invited by the high priest into the temple where he uh, raided the treasury of 1,800 talents, which is a pretty significant amount of gold. So there really isn't a way to describe how big of a deal this is. Uh, But the example I always use, and I used it last time, was imagine if there was only one blessed sacrament in the whole world, and it was in one location, and a whole bunch of people went in there and desecrated it. That's exactly what this was. And as you can imagine, the Jews were not happy. This was a sacrilege of the highest order. And then stealing from the temple just made it worse. Um, So Jason, remember him? He's like, that's what happens when Menelaus is high priest. Just like that. That's exactly. He even said it in English, which is weird because it hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) So he tried to use this kind of sacrilege and this looting of the temple to turn people against Menelaus. Now, so what do we got? We got a former high priest fighting the current high priest. Now, Antiochus, the ruler of the Ptolemies, interpreted this as a rebellion against him. which And Menelaus didn't mind that at all, by the way. right? He didn't mind having a Greek general weigh in. So Jason was trying to get power for himself, but Antiochus thought this was Jerusalem is revolting against me. And so he goose-stepped on into Jerusalem, and oh my, from 168 to 167 BC, this conflict spiraled out of control. Government policy radically shifted. The Greek rulers then said, we're going to suppress Judaism. We're going to force them to violate Jewish laws. We're going to make them eat pork, work on the Sabbath. We won't allow them to circumcise their kids. New Greek governors were put in that uh, focused on suppressing Judaism. Uh, Pagan temples were built. Synagogues were destroyed. uh, And all the Kogel hot dogs were taken away. (laughs) So the Greeks marched on Jerusalem, conquered the city, took the temple, and desecrated it. So... Uh, I then quoted you uh, from a historian of the time named Josephus in his book, The Jewish War. I then pointed out that the, the, the big step, the thing that turned this into a revolt was a rural high priest named Mattathias of the Hasmonean family who uh, sparked a revolt. 
And I don't think I need to get into all of it, right? Because I did last show, or no? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, he and his sons fled to the mountains after killing a bunch of Greeks, and they hid in the mountains and began to try to organize. Uh, the Greeks figured out the Jews wouldn't fight on the Sabbath, so they attacked them on the Sabbath. The Jews refused to even pick up weapons to defend themselves and were slaughtered. Uh, this began the war. Uh, and, of course, the Jews then, uh, the high priest, the, the real one, uh, told them, no, you can defend yourself on the Sabbath. Because uh, otherwise, of course, that was just the Greek strategy. Wait, they didn't even fight back because it was the Sabbath? Yeah. Let's plan all attacks for the Sabbath. But the next few times they tried, they found a whole pit of vipers. Um so the Jews did struggle greatly at first for a few reasons. They were wholly unprepared for the slaughter. They just, the Greeks believed in total war. Uh, and they were completely outmatched against the Greek phalanx. So I think this is a good time to quickly talk you through the phalanx. Because now we're in new material, right? We finished our review. And I think I've talked about the phalanx before. But it was a system of fighting that the Greeks brought into the world that nobody had really seen before, and it changed everything. A phalanx can only be beat in this day and age by another phalanx. Only. Why? Here's how it worked. Before this warfare is, you line up, I line up, we scream at each other in charge and start killing. Okay? And whoever kills the most people wins. Or if you're fighting the Germanic tribes, you just got to kill the guy in charge and the rest will leave. Well, when it came to the Greeks, what they figured out was this system called a phalanx. And it's built on psychology. It's built on a lot of things. Um, what the Greeks believed is there was this god called Phobos. Okay? P-H-O-B-O-S. And he was a god who would kind of hover around the battlefield. And he would keep trying to touch you. Okay? And if he touched you, you got afraid. If he got a hold of you, you were terrified. This is where we get the word phobia. Okay? And so how do you keep a guy from getting grabbed by phobos in battle? Two ways. A you make it impossible to retreat physically. B, you make it difficult to retreat psychologically. And the way you do that is by packing them into a box, okay? You line up 20 guys in a row, and your shield covers the guy, if you're, you're right-handed, your shield covers the guy on your side. And basically, you're covered by the shield of the guy next to you. And the first few rows are just shields. And behind that shield wall are dudes with super long spears who just just stab into the crowd. Okay? And this might sound crazy, but if you get a long and deep enough phalanx and you get scared and want to run away, you can't. There's nowhere to go. You're packed in. You're being hemmed in on all sides by your compatriots. And you're being pushed from behind by the guys in back. Right? So the phalanx is just pushed forward this block of dudes that is this impenetrable wall. And like this kind of porcupine. Uh, how do you beat a phalanx? Well, you outflank it. So, you, so the phalanx would put cavalry on the right and left. So you can't outflank them. 
in the end, the only way to really beat a phalanx is to break it up. And you break it up one of two ways. You put it on uneven, rocky terrain, or uh, you get the guys in back to run away. That's the only way, right? Because you can't push against that huge block of humans. Well, the Jews fought like everybody else did. You just line up, scream at each other, and charge. The Greeks fought with this disciplined phalanx. And the Greeks have been killing each other for hundreds of years at this point. Whereas the Jews had had a relative time of peace. So you've got these hardened, disciplined, tough Greeks. And you've got Jewish farmers who are used to the, well, line up and charge. Line up and charge never beats a phalanx. Again, to give you a sense of things, at the Battle of Marathon, which was about 200 years before this, 10,000 Greeks defeated about 50,000 Persians because the Greeks had a phalanx and the, the uh, Persians did the run at the phalanx full speed thing. Okay. How are we doing? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> at this point, the author has got you pretty deep in the weeds. They're telling you how bad it is for the Jews. It's just terrible. They're getting their clocks cleaned. And all they can do is run and hide. Uh, here's how Maccabees, here's how the author of Maccabees puts it. This is 2 Maccabees 6. Quote, now, I urge those who read this book, do not be discouraged or disheartened by these misfortunes. Consider that these punishments were meant not for ruin, but for correction of our nation. It is, in fact, a sign of great kindness to punish the impious promptly instead of letting them go for so long. Thus, in dealing with other nations, the sovereign Lord patiently waits until they reach the full measure of their sin before punishing them. But with us, he's decided to deal differently in order that he may not need to punish us later when our sins reach our fullness. Therefore, God never withdraws his mercy from us. Although he disciplines us, he does not abandon his people. Let these words suffice for recalling the truth. Now, without further ado, we must push on with the story. Isn't that great? And you guys see, as a side note, how Hellenization had firmly taken hold of this author. The author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy would have never written this like this. There would have been a ton of symbols, a ton of kind of cool, um, if you research enough, you can figure it out stuff. He's writing like we do. Right, we write in a very Western style. This author uh, is writing in the Greek style. He then talks about the suffering from the perspective of a few specific stories. One of them you've probably heard if you go to church. Sorry, did I say that loud? <laughs> that you read the story of the mother and her seven sons. Right, the, it's a testament to a woman who had seven boys who were brought before Antiochus and told they had to eat pork and they wouldn't do it because that broke the uh, command. And then they were all individually tortured in heinous and awful ways uh, to try to convince the remaining brothers to eat pork. And they just started with the oldest and they went all the way down to the lowest. Do you remember this? We read this once a year at mass. The one you probably don't know is one uh, of Eleazar, right? Uh, <clears throat> this is how scripture describes his martyrdom. <clears throat> Eleazar, one of the foremost scribes, a man of advanced age and noble appearance, was being forced to open his mouth to eat pork. But preferring a glorious death to a life of defilement, 
He went forward of his own accord to the instrument of torture, spitting out the meat, as should they do who have the courage to reject food unlawful to taste even for the love of their own life. Those in charge took this man aside because of their long acquaintance with him and they privately urged him to eat his own provisions that he could eat and only pretend to eat the pork. Thus he'd escape death and be treated kindly because of his friendship with them. But he made up his mind in a noble manner, worthy of his years, the dignity of his advanced age, the merited distinction of his gray hair, and the admirable life he had lived from childhood. Above all, to loyal to the holy laws given by God, he swiftly declared aloud, send me to Hades. At our age, it would be unbecoming to make such a pretense. Many of the young men would think that I, 90-year-old Eleazar, had gone over to an alien religion. If I dissembled to gain a brief moment of life, they would be led astray by me, and I would bring defilement and dishonor on my old age. Even if for the time being I avoid human punishment, I will never, alive or dead, escape the punishment of God. Therefore, by bravely giving up my life now, I will prove myself worthy of my old age. I will leave to the young a noble example of how to die willingly and nobly for the revered and holy law of God. He spoke thus and stepped forward to the instrument of torture. When he was about to die under their blows, he groaned, The Lord in his holy knowledge knows full well that although I escape death, I am not only enduring terrible pain in my body, but suffering it with joy in my soul because of my devotion to him. This is how he died, leaving in his death a model of nobility and an unforgettable example of virtue for the whole nation. Okay, so that's how I know. Isn't that lovely and awful? Yeah. So this is how Maccabees covers it. And they give you a few examples of this is how dark it was at the beginning. We had no recourse but to run and get caught. Um, now, Jews began to give in in a huge number. We have no sense of it except the Jews who didn't give in said they were a distinct minority. Uh, we have many examples of Jews now publicly eating pork, praying to idols, even assisting in the desecration of synagogues. And in my favorite one, are you ready for this? The Greeks had a medical procedure to, quote, reverse the appearance of circumcision. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, sweet, fancy Moses. Uh, so there were Jews all over the uh, area who immediately gave in. Once the tortures, the imprisonment, and the battle started, they went full Hellenization. But as we know... Uh, Mattathias and his boys and a whole grump of bunch of Jews are hidden in the countryside making plans. So what do we know? We know that somehow Mattathias died shortly after, within a year of beginning this revolt, and that his son Judas took over the revolt. One of the things I hope you know is that we're pretty close to Jesus' birth. Right, we're less than 200 years away from Jesus' birth, uh, and this revolt goes all the way up to just a bit before Jesus' birth. And what you find is that Mattathias, uh, which is the name of one of the apostles, uh, gives birth to these boys, who each begin to take charge of the army in different order, and they're so heroic. 
that people name their kids after them. And this is where you get in the, you know, you why, why did Jesus have two disciples named Judas? Because well, there were a ton of boys named Judas. Why were they named Judas? Because of this guy, <laughs> right? Uh, why is there uh, two Jameses? Because there's a James in this story, right? And you could go on and on and see that even in the pattern of naming in the New Testament, you see how deeply these people love the Maccabees for what they did. Am I making sense here? Okay. It's really crazy to think about, but it works. It's why I'm going to take the name John Wayne if I'm the first American pope. Yeah, Pope John Wayne. And my motto will be, we're all pilgrims. Yeah, I'm so sorry. So uh, from 167 to 164 AD or BC, uh, we have kind of the first stage of this war. And it's savage. Uh, how do the Jews fight it? Guerrilla campaign, right? They put on guerrilla masks and big hairy things. Okay, that's not true. That's not what a guerrilla wears. Uh, where did we go? Um, Judas did an interesting thing, okay? Uh, and I know you're probably going to think that's horrible, but he had to do something. And he can't go head to head with a phalanx. They don't have weapons. They don't have training. So this was a hit and run. And the hit and run started to draw other little Jewish bands to them. And in the end, Judas ends up with a fairly sizable combined force. Other revolt-minded Jews went and joined him and kind of submitted to his leadership. Okay, So... What did they do? Well, they didn't attack the Greek army. They attacked the Hellenized Jews. Okay, we want to get rid of all Greek allies in our land. They destroyed Greek altars in the villages. They forcibly circumcised boys. They burnt villages. They killed Hellenized Jews, drove them out of the land. And this is where you get Judah starting to developing the moniker Maccabee or Maccabi, depending on where you're from, uh, which means the hammer of God. And they just call him the hammer, right? So he was too legit to quit. Yeah. No? <laughs> what was the first big song Hammer did? Can't touch this. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, he was given the name the hammer, uh, and as were his brothers, because... Your choice was the Greeks kill you in battle by my side, or I kill you before you join the Greeks. Uh, he was very interested in righteousness. When it came to fighting Greeks, he relied on a couple key things. Speed and mobility. Um, that's something the Greeks didn't have. Uh, a smaller voice force always has speed and mobility over their enemy. So you hit and you run, and you hit, and you run. And if you can get weapons, great. But no kidding, they're carrying rocks and sticks at this point against Greek phalanx, right? Now, um, he also employed two other things that you might find interesting. I don't know if you know about feigned retreats. The Mongols were masters of this. Uh, you act like you want to go head-to-head. Okay, and uh, so the Greeks line up in their phalanx, and you line up in your battle lines, and you charge their phalanx, 
and then you let them, you let the center of your battle line kind of fall back. And then they all start screaming, retreat, and run away. What will the Greeks do? Break the phalanx to chase you. And then you run just fast enough to let them keep up but not catch you. You lure them into a trap and you kill them all. And the Jews did that a lot, and it worked. When men have their blood lust up, it's hard for them to hear their commander saying, Stop! Right? Stop! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And particularly... What the Greeks were carrying with them is the terror any army has fighting guerrilla tactics. They don't, right? It's when you're sleeping that guerrilla armies attack. It's not when you're lined up for battle. It's when you're not ready that they attack. So you lose friends. You get frustrated. You get angry at these people you don't think are being manly. And then when you get a chance to kill them, you run. You go after it. And the Jews were like, well, please come right here. Uh, The other word used, uh, tactic that they used was their knowledge of the countryside. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, that, well, anywhere you go that you don't know, it all looks the same. Uh, Well, they knew where the cave was. They knew where the ground was marshy. They knew they used all of this. Judas was clearly a brilliant commander, enough that the Greeks and Romans comment on him. Um, there were a couple of bitch, pitched battles. I said, <laughs> bitched paddles. That's what I was going to say. There were a couple pitched battles, but they were mostly against Greek auxiliaries, right? Namely, pagans who were marching under the Greek banner. Uh, these were big victories for the Jews because they showed Judas brilliance and the bravery of his troops, and they caused more Jews to come to their side. But for the Greeks, these weren't losses where they were hurting, right? Now, this all leads us to the Battle of Emmaus. Now, this was a monster battle for the Jews and the Greeks. Now, for three years, the Jews had been cherry-picking the Greek forces, um, had been luring them into feigned retreats, had been getting under their skin and being completely unwilling to fight head-to-head, right? We're not going to fight you head-to-head. We'll lose every time. Um, They used that well. They've gathered, as far as Judas can tell, as many men as they are going to get. And now we're going to give this a go. Or we're going to make the Greeks think we're going to give it a go. Okay? This is fat. How are people doing? Good. Yeah? Okay. And again, if you want to read all this, it's in First and Second Maccabees. And what's funny is your most cynical anti religion historians will tell you Maccabees really relates well exactly what happened and how do we know well because the Greeks wrote home too right the Greeks wrote home and they it all lines up and ton of archaeological evidence but anyway what Judas did was kind of wild okay and it really showed if you're a military history person just how good he was at his job okay (laughs) so the Seleucids the Greek forces They established their base camp at Emmaus, and it's a spot where they had a lot of access to a lot of routes to Judean hills and water, right? That's what you need. You need hills and you need water. Uh, It was a great base for them to, like, project power. 
Emmaus itself was flat, so they ha- could have their cavalry there. Cavalry? I can never say that word. Not the place Jesus died, but the horses. Cavalry. And uh, it would be hard if you wanted to sneak up on them. be hard to do. Judas was located north of Jerusalem at this camp called Mizpah. And what we know what is this. Judas made sure the Greeks knew exactly where he was. That was the problem in fighting guerrillas. You never know where they are, right? So Judas made sure that as far as the commander, uh, a guy named Gorgias, right? As far as Gorgias, the, the, the general leading the Greek troops, as far as he knows, he got some sweet intel about where Judas is located. What he doesn't know is Judas made sure he found out where he was located. So Gorgias sends his dudes out. We're going to fight him. We're going to march right to that camp, and they'll never know until it's too late, and they're going to have to head to head us. And he takes a small detachment out, because there's not a ton of Jews fighting him, and they start marching. In the meantime, Judas sends some scouts out to say, find out what route he's taking. Follow them. And so in the end, what you got is Judas is back at his camp, He knows Gorgias is coming, and he knows what route he's coming. He then trims his army down. He says to any guy, if you just got married, or if you're betrothed to be married, go home. Right? Uh, Basically, why? Well, for one thing, you need kids. If you're going to fight, you know, Romans were masters of this. If you're going to need constant armies, you need a lot of kids. So Judas is sending them home so they can go have kids. Uh, But not only that, he's trying to trim down his army to a small, speedy, disciplined group. He basically handpicks a group. Um, And also, this was a good defense in case things go badly for you. Because this is all, what he was about to do required a ton of discipline, a ton of strength, uh, and if we lose, we can't lose everybody. We got to, right? So he's hedging his bets. He then abandons his fort at Mizbah, although he leaves all kinds of stuff up to make it look like, yeah, we're all here getting a nice nap. And then while Gorgias takes this route to Mizpah, he's taking this route to Emmaus. And so uh, this is what I read. Quote, the timing on such a maneuver would have to have been strict. The Maccabees would have required excellent, speedy intelligence, such as signal fires or riders, and they would need to have left just at nightfall for this to work, and they would need to know what route Gorgias simply wouldn't take. So what happens? Gorgias arrives at Mizpah. He's ready to dance the man dance, right? It's deserted. So he's like, they ran away, those cowards. And he sends his army out to go scout for him. And in the meantime, he and a couple of his trusty lieutenants, well, we'll just head back to Emmaus, right? Well, the rebel troops had already arrived at Emmaus, and they found the Greek soldiers there asleep and unready. They surrounded the camp. They blew trumpets to scare them. And then they just charged in and slaughtered. They lit fires so that guys had to run out, and when they ran out, they hacked them to pieces. We don't know how many Greeks died that day. We know it was enough to make the Greeks go home for a bit. 
Okay. Now, Gorgias gets back to Emmaus and sees this pitched battle. And what Maccabi did, or Maccabi did, was when they saw Gorgias' army approaching, he had a scout light brush so that when Gorgias gets there, he can hear battle, he can see, but all he's got is smoke and a conviction that a lot of Greeks were dying. He had no idea how many men they were, right? The Jews at this point were outnumbered at least 10 to 1. But the Greeks just weren't ready, and they were scared out of their brains. So what did Gorgias do? Uh, he didn't join in the battle. Um, he left. He just turned around and went home. This turned out to be of epic importance for the Jews for a billion reasons, right? Probably few bigger than this. They plundered the camp. We've got more weapons now than we know what to do with. We've got more swords, shields, and by the way, it appears there's a lot of gold and silver here. Oh, that's ours now. Um, they, the rebels needed good equipment, and they finally got it. And for the rest of the war, the Jews are never out-armored. Okay? Before this, they had no armor and very few weapons. Now they can match the Greeks in terms of armor and weapons, never in terms of numbers. Let's be really clear about that. Uh, but they certainly can uh, face it. You know, if you're going to go fight a guy who's wearing armor and you're not, you're at a disadvantage, psychologically and militarily. Now they can put on armor and go, right? So the, they had the two battles they won before this against these small detachments. But this one, they beat a fully armed Greek force by sheer guile and speed and discipline, they out-Greeked the Greeks. Um, they proved that they could take on a Greek army head-to-head. -head. They proved they could make complicated plans and advanced strategies. And as a result, Jews started flooding to Judas. He's getting a huge army now. And this is important. Now, at this point, we're in September of 165 A.D., and the Greeks suddenly get very interested in peace. They just got their clock cleaned by a bunch of farmers. And frankly, they've got bigger fish to fry. What you and I know that the Jews didn't know is that there were these people you may have heard of who started knocking on the Greek door. They're called Romans. And what the Greeks found was every time they beat the Romans in battle, which was quite often, the Romans learned, copied Greek tactics, and then won. Every frickin' time. This is what the Romans were masters of. If you ever beat a Roman army by tactics, what you knew is a year later they used those exact tactics on you. Romans were just, it's just hard to explain how good the Romans were at war. It really is. And part of it was, whenever they lost, their big question is, what did we learn? What did we learn? Mm -hmm. So now the Greeks are starting to feel some pressure on both sides of their empire. Now the Jews don't know this. All they know is they just kicked the crap out of a ton of Greeks. And they did it in the best way possible. So they enter into negotiations with the Greeks. And 
uh, it didn't bear fruit. About six, eight months, they negotiated, negotiated. Whatever happened, and the Bible has some of the letters that they wrote back and forth, the Greeks really wanted to get out of there. And the Jews were like, I'll bet you do. Uh, here's what we need. Uh, and the Greeks just couldn't, their pride couldn't handle it. So the next thing that happened is a battle called Beth Zur. Okay, Beth means house of. That's all right. So Bethlehem is house of bread, right? Whenever you see Beth, it means house of in Hebrew. Uh, what happened there? We're not sure. Uh, nobody talks about it except to say the Jews kicked the snot out of the Greeks here. Um, we know that they had a general named Nicanor or Nicanor, depends. Uh, I struggle, right? I hear English sources call him Nicanor, and I hear American sources say Nicanor, and I, I think it's Nicanor because that sounds Greek. Yeah? yeah. But either way, uh, what we know is again, the Jews, wildly outnumbered, uh, kicked the snot out of them. And uh, I have an article on it that I was going to read to you, but I'm worried you're bored. Uh, that in the end, no, I don't know. Are people happy? Yeah. It's just funny. I know for those of you not, for those of you who don't often watch the show, I talk about Jesus a lot. It's just you caught me in a historical series because I do a bunch of those too. Because um, it's important for us to know our history. It really is, and we don't. Right. What you're learning here is the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And a great way to like think. Of, well, anyway, blah, blah, blah. So we don't know exactly what ha oh, uh, what happened there. All we know is that Judas and his troops, according to the Greeks, this part is not in the Bible, quote, used lightning attacks. Now, they don't mean, you know, Zeus level stuff, meaning hit and run, hit and run, hit and run. And whatever they did just kicked the snot out of the Greeks. But it gets even crazier. The day after this battle, which is why we don't know exactly what happened, Antiochus died. The king. Right? The one who, in a sense, started this whole mess. And he died unconnected. He was nowhere near this battle. But the next day he died, and the Greeks went, Psh, we're out. That's it. And they went home. And they went home for a few reasons. Now, this war ain't over. This is what's called the first stage of the war. But the Jews basically only really won two big battles here. But both of them, the Greeks just never contemplated the possibility that they'd lose, let alone lose, lose. Like the Brits. I, I think of that, Chuck. We remember we were talking on the boat about this. That part of the trouble the Brits had in the American Revolution was... They just couldn't believe they'd lose. Uh, and so England wasn't as quick to send supplies and troops because you don't need many to beat a bunch of peasant farmers. Um, and, you know, for all my joking about the French, you take the French out of the equation and we never become a republic. Right. <laughs> England would have never let us go because uh, we couldn't have won without the French. But um, it's kind of this thing here where the Greeks were like, okay, they won that one battle and it was a fluke. So let's just finish off this war. And the next thing they know, they're laying on the ground, bleeding to death. And then the king dies, the guy who started the whole disaster. So 
they're not done like anybody else in the Mediterranean. They got long memories, but they pulled out and went home. And their goal was to reassess and rearm. And the Jews' goal was to party like it's 1999 because that part of Israel was liberated. Right? The Greeks left. Um, so what did they do? The Maccabees forces or Maccabean forces entered Jerusalem in great triumph and joy. Uh, people were ecstatic. They ritually cleansed the second temple. Um, and they, this is where you get Hanukkah. Right. This is where Hanukkah comes from, um, th that that's the celebration of the rededication of the temple. Um, the uh, yeah, I don't know. At, at this point, then. Yeah, I, I just don't know how much detail. I'm sorry. To, I know a lot about this stuff and I took too many notes. I, I guess the best way to think of it is, of course, not all of Israel, what we call Israel, they called Palestine Levant, was pacified. The chunk where Jerusalem is, was. The chunk where Jerusalem is located was pacified. There's still Greeks running around. There's still places where the Jews are totes at peace with the Greeks. Um, but... The Greek regent at the time was a little preoccupied with all the succession issues. And what he did was sent a compromise to the Jews. Look, all those crazy rules that Antiochus put down to suppress Judaism, I'm going to revoke them. Okay? And he's doing a very politically smart thing here. Uh, why? Um, a lot of the Hellenized Jews... You know, supported the revolt because those laws were unlivable. Now, there's no reason to fight, right? And any future Jewish ruler is not going to be able to say to the Jews, let's kick the Greeks out of the rest of the place for any real reason that they can grasp outside of spiritual reasons. Am I making sense? Moderate? No, moderate's not fair. They weren't moderate. Jews who were open to the Hellenization uh, supported Judas because Antiochus's laws were unjust. Now those laws are gone. By doing this, he won over what Greeks would have considered moderates. Okay? Um, so, this is the way I read it. Quote, with the ban against Judaism retracted, their religious goals were accomplished, and the Hellenized Jews could be loyalists to the Greeks again. Yeah? So what this region did was pretty slick. Uh, now, the Maccabees were like, oh, it ain't over. They were all Coach D'Antonio on it, right? Uh, and you're going to see the rest of the war is the Jews fighting to reclaim Israel. We don't want to be under foreign rule. And we don't want pagans saying, yes, you are allowed to practice your religion. Right, we're going to practice our religion, or we're going to die. Mm -hmm. And uh, what ended up happening, and we'll get into this: the moderates left Judas, and they fought on the side of the Greeks. And that's going to be a tough thing for the Jews to overcome. But this finishes the first phase of the war. Um, do we have any questions uh, that you can? Uh, which Judas? They wanted a clarification. Which Judas? Which Judas? Judas Maccabee. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, there's two Judases 
that were disciples of Jesus, right? There was the one they just called Judas, but we called Jude. And then there was Judas Iscariot who turned traitor. They have no biological connection to Judas Maccabee, but all kinds of parents named their oldest boy Judas because they wanted him to be like Judas Maccabee. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. He has a brother named James. You have two disciples named James. He has a brother named Jonathan. You have a disciple named Jonathan. He has a brother named Simon. You've got a... Right. This is what every Jewish family was doing. You name your boys after the Maccabees, or as they called them, the Hasmodians. I mean, for 200 years, that's a... That's how smoking, right? Like, if you go to Germany, and I don't know if this is still the case, all the way up to World War II... The most common name for a boy in Germany was Hermann, right? Because of the, you might know him by the name Aramis, right? Do you know this story? Or yeah, go ahead. Do you think that, uh, okay, Germans named all their boys Hermann for 3,000 years or whatever, not literally, because of, uh, uh, now the Latin name for Hermann is Aramis, okay? Which I think sounds better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if it's like your name can be Herman or Aramis, I'm like, Aramis, please. Uh, Herman was a German boy who the Romans conquered his tribe and took him. And they did this all the time, especially to Germans because they were big boys. And then you just raise them Roman. You teach them Latin. You put them, you pull them away from their mom and dad, put them within a, with a Roman family, and they're raised as a Roman. Uh, and it's a long story, but the shortest possible version is this. It appears his whole life he played the game of the good Roman also he could someday wreak havoc and vengeance on the Roman Empire, and he did it. Uh, he did it by, when he was an adult, leading the Romans into a slaughter at the Tudeberg Forest. So if you ever want to look that up, uh, Tudeberg Forest. There's a great lecture on it called Tudeberg Nightmares by Mug Duncan. Um, we don't know a ton because no Romans survived. Uh, but the Germans completely obliterated the 19th and 20th. The Germans completely obliterated the 19th and 20th Legion. Nobody had done that before. Rome had never suffered a defeat like that, even in the Carthaginian Wars, or the Punic Wars, whatever you want to call them. Um, And he just was a hero beyond all telling. So there were statues to Herman everywhere, and everyone named their kid Herman, right? Uh, I don't think Americans do this, uh, but a lot of other people do, and especially the Jews. Uh, When I was in Jerusalem in 93, 4, I was with a guy. He was a soldier there in the IDF, and it was hilarious. He said his name was uh, Michael, and I said, oh, my gosh, that's a great, and I love that name. It's a good, strong warrior name. And he said, well, it's not a common one over here. I'm like, really? He goes, no, every boy's named David. And why? Because of David Ben-Gurion the founder of the modern state of Israel and because of King David. So he showed me, we walked in a restaurant and he says, David, and every guy in there turned around. And and then everyone started laughing. It was a big joke they do over there. You just yell David and see how many guys. Uh, So yeah, Jews named their boys after the Hasmodians. The trouble you're going to find, of course, is by the time you get to Jesus, the guy who's the descendant of the Hasmodians is King Herod, who, oops, 
Um, so anyway, sorry, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I talk too much. No. So I think that'll wrap us up for today, unless you guys have questions on this. Tomorrow, you'll get to see my interview with Father Josh. It's short. He was busy that day. Um, We were busy. And I was busy. Holy crap. But we've got some great interviews coming up that I'm so excited. My favorites. Well, it's hard to say my favorites. They were all so wonderful. But like Christophonic, who I'm just getting to know better. Um, was to me one of the highlights of the cruise. He was an a unexpected, beautiful joy and gift from the Lord. Uh, those of you who know Dr. Ray, you know he and I bonded about two years ago, and we're illegal now in four countries. Uh, we have a great interview with him. Uh, we have an interview with uh, one of my heroes, Father John Ricardo. Have we showed that yet? No. No? Um Come Holy Spirit. We showed Teresa, the interview with Teresa, my Italian sissy, uh, sister. I mean, who else? I'm missing. Jeremy McClellan. Jeremy McClellan. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, he's a comedian and he killed it. He just killed it. He did a performance on the cruise and it wasn't even fair. I mean, my stomach hurt. My face, which usually hurts other people, actually hurt me this time. Uh, so we interviewed him and that was a powerful interview. What a what a brilliant man. Yes. Um, and he really wasn't even trying to be funny, which I dug. He just no, let he us see that gorgeous heart of his. Yes. Yeah. So we've got lots of good stuff coming up. Um, and I'm excited about it. Yes. Uh, so um, I guess that's where I'm going to wrap up. Sure. Yeah. And tomorrow I'll be here for the interview just because we'll have extra time. Yeah. Um, and But I'm excited for you to get to know Father Josh. He's from the Diocese of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and just an outstanding young priest. I, I really enjoyed my time with him. And he gave uh, a fine, fine talk about the importance of prayer. That just, yeah. man. Uh, okay. So uh, that will take us through this week. Tomorrow's Father Josh. Friday is question and answer. Next Wednesday, I hope to get after the, the next stage of the war. I can't imagine I'll finish it the next show, but who knows? Um, really. And make sure and let me know if you want less detail on the battles. I gave a lot of details because I thought these are pretty simple, right? My favorite one was the whole thing of Judas. Just wait till the guy heads our way, then we'll head your way. Uh, you, uh, there is a question. Have you ever met anyone named Judas? And is that because the stigma of Judas Iscariot? You know, tragically, we Christians killed that name. Uh, for our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, If you ever, well, don't, it'll break your heart. But what Christians did in the Middle Ages to Jews was in many ways unspeakable. And part of it was, if they met a Jew named Judas, yikes, that person just didn't survive. Um, And this is part of the horror, right, that John Paul II asked forgiveness of the Jewish community, right, on behalf of all Catholics. We beg your forgiveness. Um, So, no, you really don't meet any that I know of. Uh, You'll meet a lot of girls named Judith, because we talked about her, right? Yes. Yeah, where she got that guy all liquored up and cut off his head. Yeah. Um, For Jesus. No, not for Jesus. For God. For God, yes. Yeah. Um... Yeah, tragically, you just won't see that because of us. Uh, And it's really too bad. Like, poor St. Jude, 
right? Who's yeah. really Judas, uh, who was really one of the first apostles who developed. Now, when we say cult, we don't mean it like Americans use it. We mean it like Romans use it. But just a almost like a a rabid dedication from God's people to this forgotten apostle who just did tremendous, beautiful things for the kingdom of God. Uh, and again, we have his relic here. We have his relic, which is just, I can't believe it. Yeah. And that's all thanks to Michael Matt, right? What a beautiful man and, and his wife, Annette. Right. Um, my God. Oh, I wanted to say hi today to Alex, uh, whose mom works at uh, Celtic Cove. Uh, and bro, we all believe in you, man. We love you. And then uh, if it's not too much, by the way, New York, New York, although I know you're, you're still New York. If you could send me a message, if you're comfortable. Oh, my gosh, I don't want to pry. And let me know what's going on with Ella. Because I know I've been praying for her, and I know uh, you've been asking, but I don't know why. Uh, and if that's something you're comfortable sharing with me, I'd love to know. But otherwise, just count on the prayers. Keep coming. Uh, we missed you very much. And a shout-out to all my thugs and your little gang of thugs. <laughs> so, uh, okay. I'm going to wrap us up with a prayer, and then I'll see you beautiful people tomorrow uh, for an interview with Father Josh, as well as I'll have some accompanying verbiage. Uh, verbiage. Verbiage or verbiage? Does anyone know? Verbiage. Okay. Um, uh, for all our folks in Genesee County, please be careful. Uh, the roads are very slippery right now. Uh, I just got an alert from the state police on my phone okay. urging people to go home if they're at work. Nice. So, um, except you two. <laughs> I'll go home. Yeah, it's like two. Uh, that door right there. Be it's, careful. <laughs> You know, of the three of us, like if you drove all the way back to Montrose, and if you drove, you know, the two miles to your house, no, no, if one of us is going to fall, it's going to be me, who's like walking four steps. <laughs> oh, all right, salad pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, thank you so much for our heroes, the people who, like Judas Maccabee and his family, um, who were willing to bleed and die for the truth. They're willing to bleed and die for you. And it reminds me, Lord, of all the people, especially in Nigeria and in India, who are suffering unspeakable violence because they love you. And we ask Jesus, please come to their rescue. Help them, Lord. Save them. And until that happens, Lord, give them courage. And Father, today we're asking for the big one. We're asking for peace in Ukraine. We're asking for an end to that insane war. And that you protect your people there. Jesus, today we celebrate the conversion of St. Paul and help us to believe the impossible that your enemies can become your followers and help us never forget to be merciful. Oh, Lord Jesus, you know all the people we love very much and we worry about, and you know all the circumstances in our lives that we fret about. 
And we give all of it to you, Lord, because we love you so much and we trust you. And may Almighty God bless you all. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for tuning in, you beautiful people. I will see you tomorrow. And until then, my Kung Fu is strong. Is it over? No, it's never over.